We're back on Date with the Night, and joining me is a very special guest, someone I have long admired and whose music has massively inspired me. She's a musician, producer, songwriter, DJ, professor, artist, activist, and member of the iconic bands Men and La Tigra. Today, I'm speaking with J.D. Sampson. How are you today, J.D.? I'm doing great. I'm really happy to be here with you. I'm such a huge admirer of your work, and in preparation for today's episode, I've just been listening nonstop to all your albums that you've worked on, all the songs that you've helped write. I'm just a huge fan. So thank you so much for coming on the pod. Oh, that feels so nice to hear. Thank you for saying all of that. I was just telling my students the other day, it's like what we create together. That's so beautiful. So you were part of it all. You still are. Thank you so much. That warms my heart. (laughs) You're part of all these amazing projects like Dykes Can Dance, New England Roses, and prominently Men in La Tigra. I kind of wanted to start off with finding out a bit about how you first became interested in music. I guess I started using music as an outlet to escape from my own childhood realities. And that came through just listening to the radio, pop music, driving around in my car and listening to music, but also learning about music and subcultures, countercultures as a way of rebelling against the status quo in high school. And I was more of a music fan than a musician. I actually went to school to be a filmmaker. I wanted to study experimental film, and I did study experimental film. And through that, I kind of learned how to make music. So I definitely came about being in this seat, I think, differently than a lot of other people do. And I feel really grateful that I found my way here. But I did not start out wanting to be a musician. And in fact, my parents didn't really want me to play an instrument when I was a kid. They were not happy with my sister's flute playing. (laughs) So they were like, you're not going to play an instrument. That was a waste of our time and money. So it was definitely a non-traditional route. But it was through film school that you ended up joining La Tigra. Yeah, that's right. I met La Tigra just from the feminist art scene. And I was friends with Sadie Benning, who was part of the original lineup. And Sadie and I were friends because we were both filmmakers. And for their very first tour, La Tigra asked me to go out with them as a projectionist. And I did. So I've been with them from the beginning. But for the first two-week tour that we did, I was actually not in the band. What were the kind of films you would watch growing up that inspired you to go to film school? I had like one defining moment for sure that just changed my life, which was Jennifer Reeves was an experimental filmmaker who went to Bard College. She was showing her 16 millimeter works at the Cleveland Cinematheque. And it was like this feminist experimental work that really spoke to me at the time. I didn't really understand what experimental film was, but I guess I just felt that this abstract expressionist fast cutting was just such a beautiful expression of emotion. And that's kind of what made me interested in film school. I love experimental film. That's how I kind of started. Like in high school, I was making experimental film for art classes because I wasn't that good at art. Like I wasn't good at drawing or making like something with my hands, but I was good at actually filming stuff and putting clips together. And I remember my teacher was like, this is the kind of art you should be doing. And I wish I kind of explored that more. So it's really cool to hear your story and how it connected you to music. What were your musical influences growing up? Before I had the opportunity to like 
get out of my house by myself through having a driver's license or friends that had them, I was really into pop music. I mean, Whitney Houston, George Michael, Michael Jackson was like my biggest influence. But my first records were like Boys to Men. Yes. <laughs> it was like totally random. And then like I would go visit somebody and I'd learn about like Edie Brickell. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. I really just liked artists that took me to another place. And I remember listening to pop radio on my clock radio next to my head like all night long and singing too loud and my sister yelling at me through the vents to shut up. My parents specifically like in the car only really listened to Motown or Soul. So I think there was an influence of that as well in my life, but we didn't have a stereo or a record player. So music was not a huge part of my family's culture at all. And I think that's part of why it was really important for me to like take that space and like that space, I could do anything with it. I was able to empower myself through music in a way. That's an experience I miss actually is clock radio. We used to record hours of the radio, hoping we would get the song we wanted to hear. Yep. You know, here. <laughs> and so like, then we just end up with these weird tapes of like hours of the radio itself. So cool. I remember specifically trying to find Janet Jackson's All For You. Love that song. I was listening and listening to find <laughs> that song so I could put it on a mixed cassette. On January 24th of this year, I woke up to like amazing news that La Tigra is going on tour. I was unbelievably excited to hear this. It's La Tigra's first tour in 18 years. So what has it been like preparing for this tour and what has the reaction been to this announcement? Yeah, it's been a wild six months or actually, oddly enough, it's been years. We got asked to play This Ain't No Picnic a few years ago. I think we were supposed to play in 2020. That obviously got canceled, got canceled again in 2021. So we were kind of like waiting for the date. And two years later, we ended up playing This Ain't No Picnic, the festival in LA. And it went really, really well. We had such a great time. It just felt so amazing to be back on stage with each other and with the fans and everything. So our booking agent had some people putting in some offers for us to play. And we thought, let's do it. Let's go for it. In terms of preparation, it's been kind of wild because technologically speaking, everything has changed. You know, we were playing samples from hardware samplers, which basically don't exist anymore in the same way that they used to. So we had to remake everything. And that was kind of my job. And the funny thing was like, we lost a lot of stuff over the years because there was, it just became like obsolete. So we had to like take old hard disks and get them digitized and like some of them were corrupt and we actually during COVID had to go back into the very first sessions and gather samples that way like from the original recordings of the songs oh wow and it was like really fun it was a puzzle and it was like uncovering a dinosaur or something but it's been really fun to just go on this journey and go back in time I love that you said you had fun solving this puzzle because I think I'd be freaking out, but I'm looking <laughs> at my co-producer's reaction right now and he's nodding in a way where he's like, this would have been my jam when there's a disaster or something related to like tech stuff. He's just all for it. Yeah. I mean, that's the beauty of La Tigra is that each of us just like fell into our roles and we're just like really happy with them. So 
mine is that part. And Kathleen and Joe were like, I'm so sorry you had to do all this. And I was like, oh, my God, it was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) When you performed at Ain't No Picnic last year, I had to work, so I couldn't go. But was there one song in particular you were really excited to perform? Or is there one song for this upcoming tour that you're just pumped to perform? There actually is a song, but we ended up not playing it at the St. No Picnic, which is funny. And I don't know why this song just is so fun for me, but I think it's just playing it is fun. My art is the song. Yes. I don't know. It just like rallies everybody together. And it's just like this funny, but like real experience, I guess, of just being an artist. And Playing it live is really fun because some of the songs are just like karaoke vibes and we're like, we're pretty (laughs) down with that. But, you know, it's really fun to actually play everything together. Feminist Sweepstakes is like such a great album. Do you play fake French? No, never. I don't think we've ever played it. I think we we like tried it once and it just like didn't work out. You should do a remix or something. Yeah, we were going over songs the other day and... I listened to that record and I was like, this record is fucking good. It's also like very much for the fans. Yeah. Several songs actually speak to the crowd. And I think that that is something that makes it different from the first records for sure. But also maybe this island. La Tigra was part of and majorly influenced the Electro Clash scene. I don't know if you like identify with that label. Some people don't like it. Some people love it. But what was it like to witness this new genre cropping up in the early 2000s? Since Electric Clash is kind of like coming back, people have a lot of interest in what it was like at that time. And I can only say really that like what La Tigre was doing was more from a feminist art space Mm -hmm. than some sort of more music focused thing. Mm -hmm. Of course, we performed with a lot of the people from that movement or like who identify with that movement or who other people are identifying with that movement. And we were all like acquaintances or friends and hanging out, whatever. I think we were just glommed together because we were using elements of rock music and elements of electronic music. Yeah. And that it was kind of the experience of politics and anger mixed in with dancing and joy. People seem to at least credit La Tigra for influencing that genre. So Mm. whether you are that genre or not, I was never really sure of, but I was like, La Tigra had a big part to play in how so many bands stylized their music in the 2000s. Do you see that impact or do you kind of not think about it because it's just a little strange to sort of observe, I guess? I guess I don't really care. That's the punk rock answer. Yeah, it's just kind of like stealing ideas is what art is all about. It's not really stealing, it's borrowing or sharing. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. the collective unconscious is real or we don't know that someone else is making something similar to us because we're both living within the same cultural moment. In that case, like we're all living also in New York City. So there's just going to be obvious undertones of similarity there. Yeah. And of course, you don't want to worry about what other people are doing because that doesn't really serve your art very well or anyone's art very well. Now, La Tigra, men and you yourself, you were always very politically vocal at a time when this form of expression wasn't as accepted as it is today. It was, Mm -hmm. in fact, pretty rare Just off the top of my head, I'm thinking of how controversial it was for the chicks to openly 
criticize George Bush, and then they essentially got canceled. Was this ever something that concerned you or any of your bandmates? I think one of the reasons why La Tigre resonates with people is because we say things that someone might want to say but is afraid to say. And I think we came in a time when there was no social media, so we were making it for our people. So there was no threat of cancellation. If some dude hears our music and hates it, then he won't come to the show. And that's better for all of us because we just want to have our own party, you know? Yeah. I will say that like going out on this tour like has made us think about that a little more. Like we have not been a part of the male gaze. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's a different time. And I think artists now have to make different adjustments for themselves or for their safety and for their well-being. And that's definitely complicated. Yeah. There were other artists like Peaches, who I really looked up to because of how vocal they were. And you have such a close relationship with Peaches. And for your self-released and self-titled EP with men, you went on tour with Peaches. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like working with Peaches and like how your friendship kind of came to be? Yeah, I mean, she opened for La Tigra on our first tour to Europe, and it was like her and her drum machine and Feist singing backups. Oh, nice. It was just like totally wild and crazy. And we stayed with her and we became friends that way. And then when La Tigra went on like our extended hiatus, I like called Peaches and I was like, I don't have a band right now. And she was like, come on tour with me. And I went on tour with her Impeach My Bush record for a year playing keyboard and sampler. Oh, and I also music directed that tour. So it was really fun to like break down the tracks from the record and like turn it into a live show. And Samantha Maloney and Radio Sloan played and it was just like total all-star cast. It was so much fun. We had such a great time. She is the hardest working woman in the music business. She's brilliant. She knows what she wants. She's an incredible performer who's always considering every element of the show for every song. Still to this day, like she will make the best show she can because she wants to make the best art out there. And I just really respect that. I saw her perform here in Toronto at Rebel and she was so good. Like the whole show was amazing. And they sold out of the merch. I got the last <laughs> long sleeve. And I remember when I was leaving at the end of the night, this girl in the street was like, I'll buy that off of you. And I'm like, for how much? And she's like, I only have $20. I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> but also I didn't want to give it away. I was like, this was the last one. It was meant to be. Yeah. What did you want to do with men that was different from your other musical projects? That band started in like a super weird way. And it's kind of weird to even tell the story because I'm like, wow, is that really what happened? It's so weird to think back on. But basically, Johanna and I were DJing and our manager was like, you got to come up with a name. And so we were like, let's call ourselves men. And we thought it was like really funny. It was a philosophy of living <laughs> that was like, what would a man do in this situation? If we call ourselves men, will people treat us like men? You know, those tote bags that are like, if only I was a mediocre white man or something. Yeah, if only I had the confidence. Of yeah, them. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so we were like, well, what if we just had the confidence of a mediocre white man and then we just called ourselves men? So we were DJing under that name for like 
a year or two. And at the same time, I was toying around with a band idea with my really close friends. My best friend, Every Ocean Hughes, is a visual artist, but she was like, I want to have a band. So she basically asked all her friends that played music to come together in a room and try to make her a band. (laughs) She's amazing. She has a show at the Whitney right now. She's just such a great person. And so we all kind of like started jamming together and it ended up being this project that we were calling Her Suit. And at a certain point, we decided to change our name to Men because Men had been doing a bunch of press and we were like, let's just make it the same thing. Every left the band. Johanna got pregnant and left the band. And then it was me and Michael and Ginger. We finished up the record, just the three of us. And then really like when we set out, it was a collective. And that's exactly what it always was because people came in and out. There's like a thousand writers, all of us writing on some songs, one of us writing on some songs. And it just felt like there was this ease of people coming and going as they please. And I think that that's what led to like, such a menagerie of sorts. Our shows were like this crazy vibe of lots of things thrown together and different people coming up on stage with us and performance art meets noise, meets dance, meets rock, meets punk. And I think that was what was so fun about it. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about your DJing. I find all these great photos of you DJing like iconic events on Flickr. I should send you my stash. I have a collection of photos of you that I have been either meaning to post or send to you. What's your favorite remix you've produced? It's crazy, but it's like one of the first remixes I ever made by myself. Dance Yourself to Death. Do you remember them? Yes. I just realized you're from Toronto. Yeah, Jen is a really close friend of mine. I saw them play at like some pride event and was like, this band is fucking amazing. So I did a remix for them and I still love it. I think it's really good. They had the best cover of King of Wishful Thinking, which is like, oh, that band was so good. Yeah. Maybe they could reunite and uh, play with us in Toronto. That would be amazing. (laughs) So what's the best event or party you've DJed? That is a really hard question. I mean, I throw this party, Pat. It's been happening for 10 years. I'm just super grateful for the community that keeps coming out and it's changed so much, obviously. It just makes me really proud that I have continued to bring together an intergenerational queer crowd and it's free. So it's really nice to just feel the energy of like it being open to all and accessible to all. So I think like in a general sense, that has been like such a beautiful part of my life for the past 10 years and it's close to my heart but honestly I think you may have even posted this the one that comes to my mind is like with Peaches and Yeppa in LA in like 2003 or whatever that was oh yeah 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 wish I was there Lil Pedro's maybe was the club yes I think so my whole body was sweating my clothes were soaked and it's just the best feeling when you just aren't even thinking about whether the crowd's going to like something. They're just on the journey with you, you know? Yeah. You've given other interviews where you've talked about, I think it was like for women of rock oral history, you talked about sitting in coffee shops until like 1030 at night and meeting other punks and like-minded artists. I even think of Greg Araki films where the characters are like coming and going from this like coffee shop and meeting up and they can always count on finding their friends there. Like, you think that's something we also need to bring back? Yeah, I do. I mean, I actually just saw this Instagram reel or something about this guy having a coffee house in his apartment. 
And like on Saturdays and Sundays, he just makes coffee for all of his friends and they hang out. And I was thinking like, yeah, that's exactly what it was like to go to a coffee shop. So I think we do need a way to spend time together face to face, but it's hard to know. You've been in the public eye for a while now, and you've always been known for your radical self-acceptance and for representation within the LGBTQ plus community. How much have you seen other people's acceptance and understanding change from when you were growing up to now? So much. We are coming up against even more terrible backlash in a lot of ways than we did during the Bush era. But I also think that there is this new visibility for queer and genderqueer and trans people. There has been a revolution, and I feel really happy about that. Unfortunately, it's not really coinciding with the same kind of freedoms that I think we would have thought would have come out of it. So I think that there's a lot of work to do in siphoning out what's fame and what's politics or what's glossy and what's gonna stick. That's something culturally we need to like think about and talk about. Is there an issue that you see LGBTQ plus communities facing now that maybe wasn't an issue a decade or two ago? I know there were still obviously laws against homosexuality and trans identities, but I do think the visibility has created more fear. It's almost like there's a defensive action being taken by conservatives to try to create laws to deny people's rights. That's an unfortunate reaction. Yeah, that's a really excellent point. I actually haven't heard anyone put it into words like that before, that visibility is creating more of a defense or fear. It's even bringing that fear and defense out of people you wouldn't expect, not just conservatives. Now, I wanted to shift a little bit to this article that you wrote in 2011 called I Love My Job, But It Made Me Poorer. Uh, yes, that one. I remember reading this article when it came out, and I'm in the creative arts as well, so your honest perspective on the financial struggles that artists face definitely helped me, and I'm sure a bunch of other people too. In the article, you talk about how there are lots of artists who have had success but can no longer continue, and you mentioned artists such as Spank Rock, Das Racist, and Drums, who have featured lyrics on their albums about financial struggles. This was following the 2008 financial crisis and Occupy Wall Street, and I was just wondering how you and your peers in the music industry reacted to these events. Only a few years later, the digital streaming economy started to like pick up steam And I think that a lot of artists who had come of age with a more old school model were forced to figure out how to make it. And that was definitely my experience. And I was really grateful to have been DJing and really focused on that being my main source of income in that time period. And I would say that I think a lot of artists really had to like shake it up and figure out how to become that multi-hyphenate that was going to make money in other ways. That's still the case for musicians right now. It's pretty hard to make money as a musician. That's why it's so important to really be intentional with your work, because turning it into a live show and turning it into merch, and like you said, standing outside and waiting for that last Peaches shirt or whatever, that's how we make our money. 
That's a great answer. I loved everything you said there. And just have a couple of questions before we wrap up here. I wanted to ask you about your style because I think you have really great style, especially your taste in glasses. Like you always find the coolest glasses. And I'm just like, please take me glasses shopping and find me a pair that works for my face and looks as cool as yours. How would you describe your personal style and who are your style inspirations? I really struggle with my style, to be honest. I think I just pretty much wear basics all the time. And I'm too afraid to make big statements because I actually don't like to be the center of attention. I think there was a time in my life when it was like more fun to do that. But now I feel like, yeah, my glasses are important to me. I have a very small face, so I have to get small glasses. And so like I search for the smallest glasses I can find. And then I buy three pairs of the same glasses in different colors. So that's one trick, everybody. The other is like just knowing what brands you like and figuring out what size you wear and just buying that and that's all you wear. I kind of go for the like cool dad vibe. That's my inspiration. I love that. The other day I like screenshot a picture of Brad Pitt wearing a suit because I was like, oh yeah, that's what I want to look like. (laughs) Um, But Oh, and Ellie Escobar, he's a DJ. Every time I hang out with Ellie, I'm like, oh, you're my style icon. I don't know. It's mostly just like skater meets construction worker. I don't know. (laughs) I have no idea. (laughs) I love that. I think you probably have the best professor fits. I try. I was just listening to a podcast about like the cult of academia. And it was like, that's why people just stop caring about what they wear. And I was like, oh my God, I got to get on this. I got to make sure that I look good every day. I'm sure you do. (laughs) I've read that you like to thrift. Like what's your most Mm. favorite item you've ever thrifted and where was it from? Okay. I know this immediately. We were touring in Las Vegas and we went to like this massive thrift store and I got this red sweatshirt that like fits me perfectly. It's like kind of short and it has dominoes and they're like going around the front of the shirt and it says one thing leads to another. You need to wear this at the Toronto show. It's like the best shirt that ever existed, and it's a sweatshirt. I hope nothing ever happens to it. Yeah, keep it safe. Wash (laughs) it on cold, hand wash, (laughs) air dry. It's been so great talking to you today, JD. Thanks again for coming on the pod. I can't wait to see you on your tour. It's going to be amazing. And for listeners, make sure to follow JD on Instagram at JD underscore Samson. And follow Latigra at Latigra World for more details on their upcoming tour. See you later. See you later. See you later.